Turn with me to John chapter 7. And if you recall last week, Jesus was the talk of Jerusalem. He was, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the most popular feasts in all of Judaism. It was, it had a nationalistic tone, like Israel's going to come out on top. God is one day going to reign. We're going to live in peace. But obviously, anything with, with Judaism and, and the nation of Israel, when they're thinking correctly, it is tied to the spiritual. And so this is also the case. They were looking back over the faithfulness of God in their history, bringing them through the wilderness wanderings, but also looking at God's faithfulness each year during the time of harvest. And so this festival celebrated all those things. And so this was a time where the crowds were going to be large. And we saw that Jesus was the talk of the town. Everybody was talking about Jesus but they weren't talking too loudly, if you recall, because they were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders and how they felt about Jesus. Because we learn all the way back in John chapter seven, verse one, Jesus knew something about the Jewish religious leaders. And that is what they were seeking to kill him. We're going to find out today, and it'll come out a little bit more in chapter seven. The reason for that is something happened a year and a half earlier in Jerusalem. We covered it in John chapter five. He had healed the man at the pool of Siloam and he had done it on the Sabbath. And that was a big no-no to these Jewish religious leaders. And so Jesus doesn't go up to the feast with his brothers. His brothers are like, hey, we'll clear out space. We'll build a platform. We'll make you the talk of Israel. We want everyone to know. Jesus is like, I'm not going up that way. He says, you guys go up with me. And Jesus, we learn in verse 10, he came up secretly. He came in clandestinely. We're going to learn this morning that he basically is going to lay low for three or four days of the seven-day feast, and then he's going to enter publicly, middle of the feast. We're going to see that in the verse uh, this morning. So he doesn't stay quiet. He doesn't stay in the background. In fact, what we're going to see here as we dive into verse 14 is he's going to now come to the temple. So he's coming right to the center of the action. And we'll talk a little bit more about what he does here. By the way, if you're just making notes from about John seven fourteen all the way to the end of John chapter 8, the setting is the temple. He's in the temple this whole time. There is, uh, as we'll see as we get into the beginning, beginning part of John 8, he does go home for the night and then he comes back to the temple. But everything that happens in the next chapter and a half are in the temple. And so let's go to verse 14. And what we read there is now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, verse 15. And the Jews marveled saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? And so again, he's in the middle of a seven-day feast. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. Six months from this point is going to be the Feast of Passover. And one of the things that we know about the Feast of Tabernacles is many devout Jews would actually build temporary shelters. Think of it as a week-long camping adventure, not, not glamping. But camping, because it's kind of rough. They, they would build these thatched huts. They would just kind of sleep outside. And what it did is it was a visual aid to remind them of how their forefathers had lived in the wilderness and to remind them how God had provided for them in their wilderness wanderings. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, you would still see the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze, as it's typically called, or the Feast of Sukkot, which that's kind of a funny word, but it's a Hebrew word, Sukkot, S-U-K-K. OT. And this is what the same feast. And this is what it would look like today during that time period. So they're sleeping outside, they're tenting. It's a seven day feast. And so Jesus goes out in the middle of the feast. As I've said, it was, according to historians, the most popular feast in all of Judaism. This was according to um, Josephus. And so he had laid low, right? He's, he's going out in the middle of the feast. So about day three, three and a half, four, he, he walks into the temple and begins to teach. And he was teaching, the, the verb tense tells us, for a continual point in time. He would get out and just continue to teach. Now, what's, what's interesting culturally about this is it was customary for different rabbis to kind of take a position near a pillar in the temple. They would just find a pillar in the temple compound. They would take up shop basically there. And then the group of people that wanted to listen to this rabbi would start to gather around him. And if they're like, no, nah, I don't really like that rabbi. I'm going to go down here and listen to this rabbi. There were rabbis at different pillars that the people could listen to. But clearly with Jesus teaching around the whole town talking about him, I'm sure, I'm just guessing he had the biggest crowd. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But they're gathering around him. He's continually teaching. And there's enough teaching that happened for them to be extremely impressed. In fact, what we're going to see is their comment is like, how do you know what you know? 
And how are you speaking with such authority and impassioned clarity as with you speak with? In fact, uh, you know, you'll find oftentimes, in fact, what makes a good teacher a good teacher? And have you ever thought about that? Look back in your, in your history. There were certain math teachers you liked over others. There were certain history teachers that you actually enjoyed. You weren't bored to, to tears, right? There were certain science teachers you could stomach and you're like, oh, I, can, I can go to that class. And then there's some teachers, they can be teaching the most interesting topic on earth. And you're like, man, put me out of my misery. You know, it's like, I don't even want to go to that class. It's so boring. So what do good teachers do? And I think good teachers oftentimes will take dots that you already have, that you already possess in terms of a knowledge bank, and good teachers connect those dots. Good teachers show how those dots fit together. Good teachers give context to a situation that you thought you knew, but when you get the added context, you're like, oh, wow, I've never seen it that way before. I think that if you and I could ever just sit, uh, go back in a time machine and sit and listen to Jesus, you would find in him everything that you know a good teacher is, but never been able to explain it. You'd be like, no, he's got it. He's, he's him, right? He's, he's it. That's, he's got the it factor, whatever it is. And so this group recognized it as well. But what's really amazing is one group in particular is blown away. The whole audience is blown away, but one group in particular is called out here in the book of John, and it's the Jewish religious leaders, okay? And in verse uh, 14 and 15, actually uh, in verse 15, we're going to see that this phrase says that they marveled. It means they were astonished. They were struck with awe, admiration, or astonishment. Another way to say that they were extraordinarily impressed Another translation said they, they're disturbed or extraordinarily disturbed. It, it's got this idea that he was really catching their attention. They were very amazed. And the verb tense here is also in the perfect. They just keep talking about it. Like, I cannot believe this. Oh my goodness. Listen, did you just hear me? Oh my, how does he know this? How did, and it's just kind of like this ongoing dialogue that they're having while Jesus is teaching. They're just blown away. And as I've kind of alluded to, but John will oftentimes use the term the Jews, not to refer to the nation, but to refer specifically to the religious leaders. Okay. And so not only were the religious leaders blown away, but the people were uh, as well, or the people were blown away as well as the religious leaders. But notice the religious leaders are going to be blown away with a different perspective. In fact, we're going to see this as we go through the passage because they're not blown away because of the truth that he's sharing. They're blown away because of the technical aspect with which he's sharing it. That's what catches their attention. It's like, it'd be like in our day if a, if a Bible teacher got up and he was like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, reading, I'm reading from my Greek New Testament this morning. Let me give you a rough translation as I go. And let me, you know, and, and, he, and it was like really kind of geeky, technical, just kind of like, wow, this guy's really smart. Someone who, was, who had gone to seminary, they would be like, wow, how does this guy know all that Greek? I mean, I, he doesn't even have a seminary degree. That's kind of the issue here. That's what they're interested in. That's what they're blown away. They're not really taking in what he's saying, as we're going to see as we go through. But remember, these are the exact people that want to kill him. <laughs> and they're impressed by his technical savvy. They're really blown away. And they're probably sitting there saying, wow, this is deep. He's probably sitting there saying, wow. I've never thought of that passage before. You know, oftentimes when Bible teachers listen to another Bible teacher explain a difficult passage that they have trouble explaining, they're like, oh, wow, let me take some notes on that. I'm going to kind of repeat that when someone else asks me that question. They're probably doing that here. They're probably like, wow, I didn't, I didn't see the connection there. How, how does he know this? He's never been to rabbinical training. And this is what their question is. In fact, they say, how does he know letters? It doesn't mean how does Jesus, can Jesus read? That's not what he's talking about at all. It's talking about technically, how does he know these things, these words, these teachings? He's never studied. In fact, no one studied are both perfect tense verbs, which indicate a completed action in the past with continuing results. In other words, they can tell because of what he's saying right now that somewhere in the past he must have learned this, but they don't know where. Because in their culture, uh, as we'll see, uh, a man from Nazareth would never have had elite rabbinical training. That would have been a unique situation. But his teaching was of such high quality in the present, they're like, he had to have had something in the past. That's kind of their, their thinking here. He had to have had something in the past. In fact, when you look at the Jews, this was, there was only one kind of learning 
And that was in the rabbinical schools. In fact, many people, they they believe even when you look at the apostle Paul, Paul says later in his ministry that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, which was the premier rabbi in Judaism, even historically during that time period. You had to have connections to be able to sit at the feet of Gamaliel or somebody of that quality. But oftentimes what they would do in that culture is these parents would take their son at age 13 and basically send them to live with their rabbi. And that rabbi would just train and teach for years. And so there was this extensive training. You know, many of the Jewish uh, boys at that time at their bar mitzvah could quote the entire Torah, the entire Pentateuch, the entire five books of the Bible by memory. And so there was training involved. And this is why they're so blown away. They're like, Jesus is from Nazareth. What rabbi did he sit under? They, They just can't. Blow it! Uh, they just—they're just so blown away. They can't fathom that this could even be possible. And you know, when they—when you—when you ask that question, kind of like, "Where are you from? How does this happen? How can you know the things that you know?" They're actually questioning the origin of his knowledge or his teaching. They know that he has no formal training, so they're like, "Well, what is your origin? Where are you getting this from? We know you got it from somewhere." Jesus anticipates that. In fact, they don't ask him a question, but it's kind of interesting the way Jesus says. What he says here in verse 16, he says this, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And what's interesting about this word answer is Jesus must have heard them speaking. He must have intuitively knew what they were talking about, but in some way he answered them. The the phrase used there literally means he returned an answer to them. So it is possible that we don't have the question that was posed to him here. It's just not recorded in the text, but it is possible as he's teaching, he's seeing activity, you know, and, and teachers see that sometimes, you know, sometimes you're, uh, you know, I'll be teaching and someone will say something to someone else and, and, and the person next to him will laugh. And sometimes I'm like, are they laughing at me? Did I, is my zipper down? Is my hair, you know, out of place? Like what's going on? So you can kind of see movement. You can kind of see something going on. So it might've been just that Jesus may have looked out and kind of saw some interaction, and he kind of returned an answer knowing what they were talking about. They may have posed a question. Either way, he returns an answer to them. And this is what he says. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. And so he gets to the heart of their astonishment. He says, you know what? If you want to know the source of my learned, authoritative, impassioned teaching, it's God himself. That's the source of my doctrine. That's the origin of where I got what I got, what I, how I communicate what I communicate. And what he's probably, what he's basically saying is like the stuff I'm saying, I'm not dreaming up. I'm not just some uh, random guy uh, arriving at these truths through independent study. I'm not an innovative upstart trying to just say new things and draw people to myself in that sense uh, in terms of building uh, a following. But we, we will see, and we have seen all throughout the life of Jesus, that when he taught, it was distinct it was one of a kind, and it was always recognized as such. Even in John 6, where they didn't like it and they left, they, was, they were like, man, I've never heard this before. <laughs> I, I've never seen this before. That was the mindset. In fact, it, it, right after the Sermon on the Mount, just a, another just incredible uh, statement here. Matthew seven twenty eight through 29 gives us some insight. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes, okay? In fact, John 7, 46, is, we'll get there eventually, but jump down to verse 46. The officer had answered, no man ever spoke like this man. That summarizes the teaching ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you enjoy teaching in this earthly life, you got something to really look forward to when you get to eternity because you're gonna be able to sit at the feet of the master. And have you ever been... Uh, listening to somebody, maybe it's a, a great teacher that you like, maybe it was a history teacher in school and the time just flew by and you're like, I cannot believe that's been an hour already. I can't believe that's been two hours. You're going to be with Jesus Christ. You're going to be like, I can't believe that was a thousand years. You're not even going to be bored. I mean, this is going to be so incredibly fun. In fact, as I've said before, you, you know, you're going to have a hard time probably peeling your, your body away from the foot of Jesus Christ to even look at the streets of gold. You'd be so enraptured with him. And, and this is what 
these people in this generation kind of got a taste of as they're listening to Jesus. And even the religious leaders, how does this guy know what he knows? Jesus says, I'll tell you how I know, verse 16, my doctrine's not mine, but his who sent me. In other words, I'm preaching a divine message. That's why you haven't heard it. Insinuation, you guys aren't preaching divine messages. <laughs> That's kind of weird. He's, he'll throw some shade later, so we'll, we'll see that in a little bit. So Jesus told a crowd in Jerusalem in John 5, 19, and, and notice this theme that keeps coming. We try to bring this out every time we see it, but it's important to see. five nineteen that he only did what he saw the Father doing. See that dependence communicated. He's going to tell a crowd in Jerusalem in John 12 that the Father gave him a command, what I should say and what I should speak. And so Jesus is clear. His doctrinal teaching, his doctrinal training, the doctrinal emphasis, the equipping he has are all derived from the Father. Now that is mind-blowing because we're talking about the eternal Son of God who is very God in human form. Why does he have to rely on the Father for anything? That's the beauty of the incarnation. That is the, the quote-unquote emptying of himself as we see in Philippians 2 by taking on humanity and limiting the voluntary use of his divine attributes. And he lived a dependent life on somebody else's resources, which, oh, by the way, is exactly the way we're designed to live the Christian life. Independence on somebody else's resources. And Jesus modeled that perfectly. And we see that even here. He's preaching the doctrine of his father. In fact, the doctrine, the teaching, he says it doesn't belong to him. It Rather, it belongs to the father who gave it to him. And so when Jesus is teaching, he's teaching with authority, but in a, in a sense, he's teaching with the authority of the triune Godhead, not even his own, because he's relying on the Godhead to teach and communicate what he's teaching. And this is why his teaching was so unique. This is why it was such high quality because of this uh, factor. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus is going to continue pointing these people back to the Father. In fact, we're going to see that in the next verse, because if, if they pick up what he's about to say, then guess what? They're going to be able to accurately evaluate his message. They're going to recognize it as divine, of high quality, and coming from the source of heaven if they pick up what he's about to tell them in verse 17, because accurate evaluation of a message has to follow relational intimacy with God. That's where it has to follow. It has to start with relational intimacy. It has to start with a desire for the person of God to understand spiritual truth. And the problem for many of us is we don't want God. We just want help in a time of crisis. We just want a nugget of truth to help us through a difficult circumstance. Whether we take the hand of God or not, I don't really care. Just give me the solution, God, and get out of my way. And Jesus is going to say it doesn't work that way. That it's going to start with relational heart intimacy. Lord, even if you don't clear up this circumstantial difficulty in my life, I want you. I want you. That's all I want. And then when I have you, Lord, then I can move forward. And if it clears up, amen. If it doesn't clear up, amen. I got you. You're the prize. Not my circumstantial ease of life. He's the prize. This is where Jesus is going to point them in verse 17, because he's going to say, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, Jesus uses what's called a third-class condition in the Greek. It presents the condition as uncertain of fulfillment, but still likely. In fact, it's got a wide range of of meaning, a broad range. It can depict what's likely to occur in the future. It can, it can depict what's possible to occur or it can depict something that's hypothetical and will not occur. It's, it's probably most like our conditional statements, right? It's kind of like, well, if you do this for me, I'll give you a million dollars. And the only reason I would promise that is because I'm pretty confident you won't be able to do <laughs> the, the condition. I would use this kind of statement to communicate that because I don't have a million dollars. I don't I'm not really interested in you meeting the condition and then putting me on the spot to give it, right? So I'm kind of convinced that you won't do it. So Jesus is, is using the third class condition. I don't think he's assuming the likely outcome of this condition, but he is assuming there's a possibility of one of the Jewish religious leaders or one of his audience to actually respond in the way that he's telling them to respond. If anyone wills to do his will, then this would be 
true of them. They will know concerning the doctrine. They will understand that what Jesus is saying in terms of the origin of his teaching, they'll know it's divine. They'll, they'll get it. But they've got a will to do the Father's will. In fact, willing means to will, to wish, to desire. It implies, it implies active volition and purpose. In fact, what it's describing is someone who strongly desires the will of God over and above everything else. Automatically, you know, because you know how the story ends, that's not describing Jesus's audience at all. Those Jewish religious leaders, they don't want the will of God. They're building their kingdom. They're building their profile. They're building their persona. They love being called rabbi in the streets. They want more people to call rabbi in the streets. They love staying at a pillar and having the biggest crowds in the temple compound. That's what they're after. They're not after the will of God. And so Jesus is saying, look, if you will just shift your thinking and, 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 and see that you, want, you really want God's will, you don't want what you think you want, you really want God's will, you'll understand that the message that I'm preaching is truth. It's authoritative from divine resources. And quite frankly, you can preach the same message. It's kind of the implication if you really want the will of God. This is what he's telling them here. And so what Jesus is doing here is, is subtly calling out the proper heart motive behind truly understanding the, 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 the source of his doctrine. And one of the things, especially for the Jewish religious leaders, they needed to realize that Bible truth or doctrinal truth is not just intellectual. It's not just making a technical language point. It's not just being the smartest person in the room. That's not what it's about at all. There's a relational element involved that they were missing. There's a relational intimacy element that they were missing. And so if a person wants what God the Father wants, then they will know and understand the source of Jesus's teaching. By the way, just to take a quick aside for personal application, this is the key to understanding and growing in your understanding of the word of God today. See, the problem with many of us is we don't want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We want something that meets our need in the moment with or without relational intimacy with God. We could care less. We just want the trial to go away. We want the circumstances to get better. And this is why, and I hate to criticize this because I know this has helped a lot of people over the years, but it's just why I like those promise books you buy you know, at the Christian bookstore that are just full with hundreds of pages of Bible verse promises. I can see the value of those, but I can also see the detriment of those. Because what they do is they have this tendency, if not viewed in the right way, they have this tendency to actually distract you from relational intimacy, God, and put you on basically a a genie on the bottle wish list where now I'm going to read this promise and that's going to meet my need. No, I don't want some words on a paper to meet my need. I want the God of the universe to meet my need. I want my need met as I'm holding his hand in relational intimacy. This is what they're missing here. And the question is, you know, even as you come to Bible study, how many times do we get so hung up on our little hobby horses of doctrine that it's like we cram that into every passage in the Bible? And I'm sorry, give me your pet hobby horse and I can point out tons of passages where your pet hobby horse is not in the passage. And quite frankly, when you want the will of God, Your desire is not to cram your hobby horse in that passage. It's to understand what God's communicating to you through that passage. And that's your only heart's desire, is you want the will of God, you want the understanding of God. And and too many Christians, and myself included, the Bible's not a hobby horse. The Bible's not a fortune cookie. Has anyone ever gotten a fortune cookie and you open it up and it's like, your life is going to suck the next month? It just doesn't happen. Every fortune cookie is positive. Every fortune cookie tells you what you want to hear. Be careful that you don't come to the Bible only looking for verses that tell you what you want to hear, that tell you or convince you of something that you're already convinced of. And so you're just going to, you know, take that square peg and jam it in the round hole and say, yep, this verse supports what I already hold to. Don't ever take, that's the key to spiritual stagnation. If you want to live the year one of your Christian life, over and over and over again and never make any progress in the Christian life, do that. Just jam your little square peg into every little round hole. Let your hobby horse dictate your Bible study instead of coming to the Bible and say, God, you stand in authority of over me. What do you want to tell me today? What do you want to communicate to me today? Lord, I'm ready to respond. I'm not the dictator of my life. You are. 
You're the organizer of my life. I may have a to-do list, but God, here's a red pen. Cross out anything that you don't want on there. And that needs to be the attitude that we take in life. The religious leaders weren't taking that attitude at all. And Jesus is just calling out their hard attitude. By the way, the Bible is replete of promises. In fact, here's one in Matthew 5, 6. I think even though in the Sermon on the Mount, it's a transdispensational principle, which is this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. If you want what God wants, he wants to feed you. He wants to hold your hand. He wants to lead you. He's not trying to make this difficult. He's not playing a, a cosmic game of peekaboo or hide and seek. He really isn't. He wants us to walk with him. He wants to show us how he's leading us. He wants to provide spoon-fed truth that we can grow thereby. And our, our only goal in life is what Peter says, to long for the word of God like newborn babes long for milk. Have you seen a newborn baby long for the bottle or long if their mother's breastfeeding for the breast? Have you, have you seen that action in, recently? Go back in the nursery and check it out. They're voracious. They're like little, like little tigers and little lions. They're animals, right? They just, they just can't get to it quick enough. In fact, if you don't get them the milk quick enough, they start screaming at you, right? They're voracious for it. And that's what we want to take. It's that same mindset, that same imagery Jesus' audience was not doing that. In fact, he says, if you do will the will of God, you shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. And this word know means to be in a beginning sense. You'll come to know. In other words, it's not, it's experiential knowledge gained over time. It's not like, okay, I want your will, God. Go ahead, download the information. Oh, he didn't download it, so forget it. I'm not doing this anymore. It's not a silver bullet. It's an attitude of life. It's an attitude of heart. It's when you wake up in the morning, you're saying, Lord, I, I just want what you want today. I'm, and that's why Romans 6 tells us to do what? To present our members. That's all. Like a servant presents to their master. I'm here, Lord. I'm available. It's kind of the idea even communicated here. And again, so I, I just said, it's not magic bullet. It's not instantaneous. It's going to come into play over time as you pursue the will of God. And you know, this is encouraging. Should be. That if you're hungry of heart and you really want God's will, God wants to feed you. God wants to lead you. God wants to provide for you. Simply if you just want his truth, his way, and his will. I love what one commentator said. He said, Jesus' hearers had raised the question of his competence as a teacher. Like, where'd you get this from? Here, Jesus raises the question of their competence as hearers. You know, what what a challenge to each one of us. How do you hear the word of God? Do you hear it with a heart to respond to it? Do you hear it with a heart to justify what you already believe? Are you coming open-handed, open-hearted, saying, Lord, influence me? I know I think like an idiot sometimes. I don't want to think like an idiot. I don't think straight sometimes. I view things through my own selfish lenses. In fact, I, I, I get upset with people when they disagree with me And it just exposes my own self-focus, Lord. I don't want to think that way anymore. I don't want to treat this person that way anymore. I don't want to have these thoughts. I don't want to speak these words. Lord, I'm available. I I want you to change me. I want to respond to you in whatever way that I can. I see God is, the promise here is God will reveal the accuracy of a teaching uh, or a message to those whose pursuits of him are about him not about them. And oftentimes we, we've got to get into the depths of our heart to really analyze the motive of why we do what we do. And oftentimes even our Bible study is all about us. Our ministry is all about us. And it needs to be about him. And that's, so that's a challenge, I think, for each one of us here. As, as Jesus says this to this group here, whether it's from God or whether he speaks from his own authority. And by the way, Jesus is now going to expose false motives. This is how you know. This is, this is how you know where you're at. In fact, verse 18 says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. This phrase, he who speaks is a substantive part of so it's just the speaking one, the, the one who's teaching about God. And, and if he teaches from himself, and that, that word from indicates source, it's out of himself, out of his own ideas, out of his own resources, 
even as it relates to God's word. Do you think a Bible teacher, a pastor, a missionary can teach the word of God out from their own resources and make it all about themselves? Do you think that's possible? I mean, not in Noonan, of course, right? But somewhere else, somewhere out there, Fievel Mouskowitz, you know, <laughs> of course that can happen. Of course pastors can have improper motives. In fact, we just read about some in Philippians 1 this morning in Sunday school. Their motives were terrible. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching out of their own resources, even as it relates to God's word. So the idea is that some teachers will speak out from themselves. They won't speak out of God's divine source. And this is a person, I would argue, that's who their heart's desire is not to draw out truth from the word of God, but, but rather use the word of God to support their already established ideas and doctrines. They're not open to learning. They're not open to the will of God. They're what they're open to is keep going on the track that they're on without any kind of adjustment at all. And there are people like that. In fact, Jesus's audience is like that. In fact, Jesus says that the person that teaches like this from their own resources, all about themselves, they've actually got one goal, whether they realize it or not. And here's the goal. They seek their own glory. And this is what their ultimate goal is. In fact, the word seek means to look for, to strive to find, to the word contains the idea of earnestness, anxiety, and intensity of pursuit. They, they are seeking something and it's their own glory. In fact, when you look at the word glory, just an interesting word, when you take time to kind of really look at it, it means the word itself means to think or to recognize. And so it came to mean thought or opinion, especially favorable human opinion or reputation praise and honor. And what he's saying is when you don't want the will of God, when you speak out from your own resources, he's talking to this group here, you're actually doing it for your own glory. You're actually doing it to promote your own reputation. You're building your brand, as we might say culturally today. This is what you're all about, is building your brand. And every other teacher in his day, apart from Jesus, in effect, were promoting their own ministry. They were speaking out from themselves. They were copying other rabbis. That's why the crowd made an interesting comment in Matthew 7. He speaks with authority, not like other rabbis, because other rabbis didn't speak with authority. They just quoted other rabbis. That was their authority. Jesus had personal authority because he was exegeting and teaching the word of God. So he had personal authority because he could show them from the text what he was saying. See, they wanted to gain prestige. We learn uh, in Matthew, the, the, they would walk around, these rabbis would walk around the street, and they just love to hear people call them rabbi. Rabbi, rabbi. They're just like, yeah, I am a rabbi. I'm pretty important. Yeah, I'll get to you in a second. Let me, I, I got to deal with these other people first. You know, it was just this level of importance and prestige that they were all about. And that is what motivated their teaching. They could be teaching biblical truth, but it was all about them. And they wanted themselves to get the glory. They wanted their reputation to grow. In contrast, Jesus lays his motives bare. This has to do with the origin of his teaching, the one that he's representing on earth. And his end goal purpose is to glorify him or to declare the big reputation of his father. Again, he who seeks substantival participle, the seeker, the seeking one, the one who is the seeker of glory, of the one who sent him, is what Jesus is saying. And again, this is the same word, earnestness, anxiety, intensity of pursuit. This isn't just, oh, I did something and I accidentally glorified God. This is what my heart is about. This is what my life is about. This is what my energy is about. This is what everything I do, my priorities, is about. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. And he's speaking third person, but he's talking about himself. So in contrast to the one teaching out from themselves, wrong source, in order to pursue their own glory, wrong pursuit. Jesus does everything opposite from what everyone else is doing. Jesus is going to have the right pursuit, which is the glory of the one who sent him. And thus his teaching has a divine source. It's got the right source because ultimately what this tells us, that's all he was interested in in. That is just uh, an amazing statement. The glory of the one who sent him. Jesus is quite literally and passionately pursuing a good reputation for the father, and he will successfully accomplish that goal. You know, just as a 
Again, a, a word of application here. If, if you were to take quick spiritual inventory, okay, just individually, no one's looking at your sheet of paper. Could you honestly say that this is what your life is about today? As you sit there, is this what your life is about? Are you passionately with earnestness and intensity pursuing God's reputation in your own life? Is that what wakes you up in the morning? Is that what drives every decision that you make? Is that how you prioritize your time? Now, this isn't uh, the, me- this, <laughs> the point of the message where everyone feels guilty and like a, a worm in the dirt, right? It's to encourage us, guys. It's to encourage us that maybe even if we took a little step further in that thinking today, we're going to make progress. And we're actually going to see the value of life. And when stuff comes our way, it's not going to knock us down or keep us down as long as it did yesterday. Because we understand there's a purpose for living. That if you are breathing, that you have a body, you've trusted in Jesus Christ. He's got good works designed for you to walk in. That means the God of the universe specifically knows who you are what you bring to the table, what your spiritual gifting is, what your experiences are. He knows where you're going to be today, tomorrow, and into the future. And every step along the way, he has specifically designed a game plan for you that when you get to heaven, you're going to be like, wow, John Clark's game plan. It was right there. October 22nd. These were the good works he designed me to walk in. It's amazing. You've got value to God. That's my point. Not to beat you down, but to say, Come on, this is, this is for the one who died for us and rose again. This is important. This is, this is the man who gave his all for each one of us. His smile at the end of the day should be the only thing that matters to each one of us. That's what ought to matter. In fact, I was reminded of an old hymn we used to sing. And every once in a while, when things are difficult, when things are challenging in my life, for some reason, this hymn comes to my mind. And I don't know if you guys remember this. Some of you will. Some of you will be like, man, I've never heard it before. But it says, here's the chorus. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. Guys, I am here to tell you and encourage you, it will be worth it all. Trust me. And when we get there to heaven, we're going to point at each other and say, you said it will be worth it all. You said, yes, it was. And it was. Look at us. We're here. It will be worth it all. But it's going to take small decisions of faith. It's going to take small responses day by day of faith for each one of us individually. And instead of getting in each other's way and distracting one another, let's encourage one another. And so much more as we see the day approaching because he is returning and it can be any day. And let's encourage one another. That's really the goal of what we're seeing. Are you about the reputation of the one who sent him? Yes or no. And if we are, let's start making choices that reflect that passion that Jesus also had. I love how Jesus ends his life because in John 17, 4, on the night that he's betrayed, he has this, what we know as a high priestly prayer. This is what he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Wouldn't that be just a beautiful thing for you to be able to say on your deathbed? I've glorified you on earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. You know what most people say on their deathbed? Oh, I should have. Oh, I should have. I should have done. I should have. I should have, I should have. What a beautiful thing. If you could say, not, not in arrogance, but just to say, man, as best I knew, Lord, <laughs> I finished the work you gave me to do. I was, I was available. And I wanted your reputation above it. You know my heart. You know, where I, you know where I thought, yeah, I failed a lot of times, but this was my heart. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Jesus is going to be able to say that at the end of his life. Now, he, he self-assesses himself. Now, uh, initially, it looks like Maybe he's trying to build up his reputation now. Maybe doing the opposite of what he just said. But let me tell you why he's not doing that. But notice his self-assessment. He, he, sees, he makes two claims about himself in verse 18. The first one that is, is that he's true. It, it means without hiding or one who cannot lie. Present tense verb, right now, continually, he's true. The reason Jesus is true right now is because he's always true. That's his character. He cannot be anything other than true. It's kind of the idea that he's communicating. And then he also says there's no unrighteousness 
in him. Unrighteousness means something that's not conformable with justice. So he doesn't do anything wrong. Also, present, active, indicative, right? Right now, continually, he doesn't do anything wrong. The idea is he never does anything wrong because that's his character, to not do anything wrong. He cannot do anything wrong. He could never be this way. And this is what he says about himself there. And again, it looks like he's pumping himself up, but culturally, these two self-descriptions are very understand in light of the context. And this is very important, I think, as we point out, because it's not contradicting himself in the same breath. Because remember what the Jewish leaders were thinking about Jesus? He was a false teacher. In other words, he's a liar, right? He's lying. He's deceiving. In fact, if you go back to 712, wasn't that what some of the, some of the crowd was even saying? In 712, he said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. He lies. And Jesus is saying, I'm not a liar. I can't be a liar. I'm not deceiving. I cannot deceive is what he's basically saying. And then they were also thinking that he was unrighteous in his actions. They thought he was a blasphemer worthy of death. In fact, we don't have to go much farther than, than chapter 7, verse 19. We're going we're gonna to see that uh, Jesus says, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Why are they killing him? We'll jump down to verse 23, or why do they want to kill him? He says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. In other words, they're looking back to the healing in John chapter 5, the healing of the man at the pool of Siloam. He healed him on the Sabbath and he said, you're unrighteous. You did something wrong. You broke the law. And Jesus is telling them, I don't lie and I'm not unrighteous. And so again, he's not building up his own reputation. He's just clarifying why they can trust him, why they can trust him, why they can trust his message. Now, Jesus is not a stranger to conflict. So he's going to engage them here. He's going to say something pretty difficult. He's taking them on. He's calling out their motives in verse uh, 19. And the heat really gets turned up here, uh, actually. Because in verse 19, he says, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? This word give, it's interesting. He, he says, Did not Moses give you the law? It's used in the perfect tense. The idea is a past completed action. In other words, Moses gave the law at Mount Sinai. That's the past completed action. But the the emphasis in the perfect tense is on the ongoing results. And so in other words, did Moses not give you the law and don't you still possess it right now? You see, he is throwing a little shade here on them. You guys still possess the law, right? (laughs) It's kind of the idea. Because what he's going to say is that none of you keeps the law. Don't you still, maybe you lost the copy. Maybe that's why you're not keeping it, but don't you still possess it? So so why don't you keep it if you still possess it? It's kind of the idea. And this word keep is actually the word that's typically translated do. It expressed action, either as completed or brought about. And so what's really ironic about these religious leaders and what's really ironic about legalists in general, they're never consistent. They're so incon- they're the most inconsistent people on planet earth. And quite frankly, when you function as a legalist, I always describe myself as a recovering legalist because I am. I still gravitate back toward legalism in my mind often. It's a constant battle for me because I think that's the nature of our human natures. That's our default mode is we want to do something to somehow gain spirituality or acceptance with God, we're always thinking anti-grace for whatever reason. But you know that when legalists think they are the most inconsistent people, because what did they have a problem with Jesus about? Breaking the Sabbath law. And what were they considering to do in order to punish him? Break the Mosaic law. Totally inconsistent, totally hypocritical, kind of like the whole COVID thing with Matt. I don't want to get into the political side of that, but but the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of mask here, no mask here, mask over there, no mask here. You could just see it's just totally hypocritical, right? We typically see hypocrisy in others very clearly. In ourself, it's, yeah, it gets a little blurry. <laughs> it's a little fuzzy sometimes on that. One of the things that we see is that they're actually the ones breaking the law right now by not doing it and continually not doing it. In fact, it's interesting, by, by phrasing it the way Jesus says, he's basically saying, you guys are continual lawbreakers. 
You guys are supposed to be the righteous, religious leaders of the nation, and y'all are just lawbreakers constantly. You're continually breaking the law. It's kind of what he says. This is their ongoing manner of life. And one example of how they don't keep the law is found in the next question, right? He's going to just call them out. He knows what's going on in their thinking. He knows what they thought back in John 5. He knows what they still think. Why do you seek to kill me? Again, the word seek means to look for, to strive to find. The word reflects intensity of pursuit. They were earnestly racking their brains for an angle to take Jesus out. That's what he's saying. Why do you seek? Why are you intensely looking for an opportunity to kill me? And in this case, the Jewish religious leaders were not seeking God the Father's glory or his will. They weren't seeking to do the Mosaic law, but they were seeking what? Actively, how can I break the law? That's what their mind was on. They're not even equipped. They're not even in the right mindset to enjoy the Feast of Tabernacles. They're so distracted and blinded by rage and anger at Jesus Christ. They're not even worshiping the God that they claim they're defending by persecuting Jesus. It's crazy. And so they're actively pursuing the violation of a clear commandment of the Mosaic law, thou shalt not murder. They're actively pursuing that right now. And see, that's what religious people don't often understand. Knowledge of the truth does not equate to submission to the truth. Submission of heart to truth is much different than knowledge. And that's another problem that we have because oftentimes in Christianity, we think that the more knowledge we're going to get, the more spiritual we're going to become. That is the worst, worst math equation for spirituality I have ever heard in my life. Because oftentimes you and I would do well to trade in some knowledge that we have for submission of heart to truth we already know. We would actually take a step forward if we lost some knowledge and learn how to respond to the truth that we already possess. But we're just so interested in diving into another Bible study, learning this Greek word, doing this, doing that. And, and we think that somehow as we just keep piling up knowledge, it's somehow spirituality is just going to magically appear. It takes relational heart response and submission to the word of God. If you can do that in the dull moments when no one's watching, you'll make progress. More, more than doing five more Bible studies, guaranteed. And it's because information intake does not equate to spirituality. It's how do you respond to the truth that you're intaking? Not how much are you intaking? So oftentimes we get that confused. Now, we know that Jesus knew this. Of course, they're going to deny it. Uh, you know, he knew they were going to, they wanted to kill him. He knew that back in 7-1. He knew that before he came to town. He knew all these things. But see, religious people are externally righteous, or they're external law keepers, but they are internally wicked. And that's why I said the most dangerous people on the planet are religious people. Because often they have a holy book in one hand and a knife in the other, and you don't know which one you're going to get some of the times. And you got to be careful. They're, they're hypocritical. They're not consistent. They're very unstable. In fact, this internal wickedness will show up externally at some point. You know, I've, I've often wondered, and I had to make, I got to make this quick because I'm running out of time, but I've often wondered, if for a day we could see everybody's insides the way that we see their outsides and who we would actually gravitate to and who we would actually avoid if we could see that, you know? And what would you look like in the mirror? <laughs> if your internal was kind of, uh, you know, wrapped around your outside, what would you look like? And whatever you are internally, in your heart and in your mind, your thoughts and the way you feel about others, God sees that clear, clear as day as we see you're outside. You're not fooling anybody. So you, instead of putting so much energy to put, you know, lipstick on the pig, so to speak, we should be more interested in just cleaning up the inside and addressing that and taking that to the Lord. Now you see their response, kind of interesting. Verse 20, they um, are kind of shocked. They're, they're like, what? Who's trying to kill you is kind of the idea that people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking uh, to kill you. This is kind of their way of saying you're crazy. You know, in this day and age in this culture, the Jews commonly thought of mental illness, especially in the case of paranoia, was, was somehow demon-induced. So basically saying to Jesus, you're mental. You know, you're half-baked. Like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, this is kind of the idea. And so he's calling out their inner thoughts. And then the people, notice who answered and said, you have a demon. It's not the religious leaders, right? Did you see the shift there? He's been talking about the Jews, the Jews. Now he says, the people answered. 
and said, you have a demon. So the people are just the average people in the crowd. These are just the Jewish people listening to what Jesus is saying to the leaders. They had been listening to him teach, but they were impressed with his teaching, but they really had no idea what he was talking about. This is, they're like, wow, this is really good. Why did he get so dark here all of a sudden? Like, whoa, where's he going here? This is kind of, this got dark. Like, this just went off the cliff. Like, it escalated quickly. Like, where's he going with this? And this is probably the mindset here. And one of the things that's interesting is when, when, you, when you look at the history, the murderous thoughts of these Jewish leaders had been baking in the oven for a year and a half, at least at this point. Because when you go back to the infirmed healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda, we read in John 5, 18, therefore the Jews, again, that, that term referring to the Jewish religious leaders, sought all the more to kill him because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus's fame had only grown since this point of time, but this is a year and a half earlier. So this has been in the oven for a while. This is why I believe Jesus knew that this was happening. So they say, who is seeking to kill you? So they, they obviously, if you go back to 713, right, they knew they couldn't speak openly of Jesus for fear of the Jews. So they knew there was some intensity building up. There was tension in the air, but I don't think they considered or even considered the fact that the religious leaders were actively trying to put him out by killing him. I don't think they thought that was even a possibility at this point. It's kind of like, it'd be like looking at someone you think is really religious and holy and go, oh, they would never, they could never be capable of that. That's kind of the attitude they're taking. These Pharisees, no way could they be capable of murder. We're going to find out in six months what they're capable of. Very clearly, they're capable of murder. And so uh, we'll stop there this morning. We're going to keep working through the dialogue next week. Jesus is going to keep trying to identify himself and prove his identity to them, just like John is doing in the book, because he wants people to trust in him and him alone with eternal life. But we're going to see that this crowd is going to wrestle uh, again with his claims. It's a back and forth mental wrestling match. And we'll kind of pick up there next week. Let's close it with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the life of the Lord Jesus. I thank you for these opportunities we have to just kind of slow down and look at these events um, in his life, how he dealt and handled with these things, the truth that he wants to communicate to us. Lord, may our hearts just be open sponges to what you want in our life, what you want to teach us, what your will is, and give us understanding how we can respond more consistently to what you're teaching us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.